Ladies and gentlemen and NBs, we'd like to kick off this episode, our last of the year, with an announcement. We are becoming a crypto podcast. We are gonna make it, baby. Just kidding. But we wanted to wrap up our second season with an episode that allowed us to wax a bit philosophical on the crypto-infused zeitgeist this year, and some of the ways that we observe technology transforming culture firsthand. And what better way to do that than to zero in on a story that involves a Sotheby's auction, a priceless historical document, and one of the biggest crypto-based financial flash mobs in history. So back in September, Sotheby's announced it was putting up for auction one of 13 still-surviving original copies of the U.S. Constitution. Given the rarity and historical significance of the item, it wasn't too surprising that it would make some headlines. But that news was soon overshadowed by the fact that 17,000 people on the internet were teaming up to bid on the document. And that, after collectively raising more than $40 million, they almost succeeded. Though they ultimately lost out to a Republican hedge fund owner named Ken Griffin. They did this through forming something called a DAO. That's D-A-O which stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Basically, a kind of non-hierarchical, self-governing community that coalesces around a common mission and uses blockchain technology to fundraise, coordinate, and make decisions. As writer Max Reed recently pointed out in New York Mag, people in Web3, Web3 is a shorthand often used to describe a new version of the internet that uses blockchain as its foundation, sometimes joke that it's basically a group chat with a bank account. Although that group chat actually operates kind of like its own mini sovereign nation. It's bylaws immortalized in computer code. There were a lot of reasons this was actually pretty exciting to watch go down. For one thing, there was the GameStop-era thrill of watching the staid formal ritual of a Sotheby's auction unfold as a wave of pseudonymous avatars descended on the YouTube live chat with exhortations of GM, a simple good morning that has become a kind of euphoric rallying cry in the crypto space. Symbolically, though, it was like watching a new mode of economic organization, grounded in the power of the collective, rise up to compete with the financial establishment on its own turf. It was as though these people were staking a claim for Web3 as a tool that could be used to build a world with new rules by purchasing the rules of the old one. Or at least that's how Drew Millard and Kevin Munger, friends of the pod who you may remember from our first season, described it in a recent essay called Imperfect Union, How Constitution Dow Lost Its Way. In a piece written for Friends with Benefits, another decentralized autonomous organization that happens to count Emily as a member of its editorial team, Kevin and Drew set out to examine how Constitution Dow happened where it went wrong, and why, despite bringing so many people together and raising such a jaw-dropping amount of money, it was never really able to transcend its status as a meme. To celebrate the end of our second season, and the wild ride that was 2021, we brought them back on the show to discuss why the whole saga feels so emblematic of the post-Biden zeitgeist and some of the hard lessons we learned this year about financial flash mobs and networked protest movements. We also talked about whether it feels accurate to describe the NFT and meme stonk delirium of the current moment, as some pundits have done, as a new quote-unquote roaring 20s.
We're here with our two guests, boyfriend of the pod, Drew Millard, and friend of the pod, Kevin Munger. Drew is a writer and editor whose work has appeared in Gawker, The Nation, and The New York Times Magazine, and he's currently finishing a book about golf, due out in the spring of 2023 on Abrams Press. Kevin is an assistant professor of political science and social data analytics at Penn State University. His book, Generation Gap, Why Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture, will be published in May 2022. Hey guys, welcome back to the pod. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Okay, so give us a quick breakdown of what went down with Constitution Dow. Who were the bidders? What was their motivation? So basically, there were a group of about 17,000 people who created a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, whose sole intent was to bid on, I believe, the only non-institution-owned original copy of the Constitution. And they raised like $40, $50 million and... They lost, and all hell broke loose. But also, all hell had broken loose before they lost, too. So, Drew, can you tell us a little bit about who this group consisted of? It was started by kind of like a core group of folks, at least one of whom was a teenager. And it sort of expanded outward mimetically. You know, they would raise some money and that would become noteworthy and then more people would join and then more people would contribute. So it's unclear who a lot of these people are, which is part of the point. We know who the organizing committee was, but the impressive part is how many different anonymous individuals, especially pseudonymous individuals, were able to come together and contribute money in a way that Although ultimately it failed, it failed less badly than it might have. And what sort of was the appeal for, you know, everyone from a teenager to some anonymous person, wherever? I mean, 17,000 people, that's that's a lot. If it were to have succeeded, you know, what, what would 17,000 people owning this copy of the Constitution actually mean? So they wouldn't have actually owned the Constitution. They actually would have owned nothing. And this like third party would have owned the Constitution, and they would have immediately turned around and donated the Constitution to some institution of some sort. And what people were actually getting uh, when they contributed to this effort was a governance token with the unfortunate name of People, which would have given them the right to vote on various proposals submitted by uh, different institutions for how they would house and showcase this particular copy of the Constitution. So the question of what they were getting out of it, uh, it's it's does not have obvious analogs. Um, I think this, as so many postmodern finance examples over the past few years have shown us, is that for a lot of people, uh, this is a consumption good that they are deriving some enjoyment from participating in this process in a way that does not necessarily map onto the ideas of ownership. I mean, the irony in this case is that the reason why people are nominally interested in Web3 DAOs kind of space is because it 
presents at least the potential for uh, revolutionary new forms of ownership. Um, and yet, in this case, it didn't really seem like anyone was actually interested in it on those terms. It seemed like they were more interested in it in a way to play act the memes about Nicolas Cage and uh, owning the, the Constitution basically as a joke. Uh, these things are uh, not obvious to me, having spent, spent some time just looking at this, and yet they are powerful enough to motivate, uh, you know, 17,000 people. Why did this feel like such an important moment? What even about the idea of a group of 17,000 people teaming up to buy the Constitution was striking to you enough to write this 4,000 word essay? You know, in terms of all these Web3 projects, a lot of them have resulted in you know, a individual person or a small group of people making uh, a shitload of money. And this was sort of an interesting project because it was the first Web3 project initiative, whatever, where a shitload of money was being amassed not for the personal gain of the core contributors. And that I think really signals potential ways out of the current, you know, like giant pile of bullshit that is the internet right now. And that's kind of what I found intriguing about it. That and the idea of get, writing an article and getting paid in cryptocurrency. Yeah. I mean, the ability of these organizations to at least uh, send money around is a proof of concept, uh, which is motivating all sorts of people in the cultural space, uh, ourselves included. I, I mean, I largely agree with Drew's motivation. I, I'm interested in the fact that so much of, uh, I think I'll come out and say, like the art in the NFT space that has become synonymous with these communities is so bad that it really is taking up too much of the oxygen in these conversations that there is something potentially interesting here. On the other hand, you know, maybe it's all a scam. I think it's a reasonable point to say that, right, they didn't actually use the fact that this is a DAO at all. That didn't really matter. Um, it, this ultimately operated like a Kickstarter, and the DAO element of it was not used um, really, really at all in the process of buying the Constitution. For people that aren't really familiar with DAOs, like how might that have looked if they had you know, really implemented the DAO element versus it just, like you said, being a Kickstarter? So well, the interesting thing about the DAOs with governance tokens, this, this model, is that it is a way to have a large decentralized organization where you are able to make decisions reasonably quickly. So there's a trade-off in organizational management theory between centralization and decentralization, and, and they each of these modes have different pros and cons. So centralized top-down organizations are able to, let's say, communicate from the top to the bottom very quickly and turn on a dime if necessary. Um, a, their weakness, though, is that it's very difficult for the centralized uh, controllers to get information from the periphery. The advantage of the decentralization model is that the periphery is able to incorporate the information that they have um, which ultimately is a lot more information because there's a lot more of them. But 
uh, oftentimes more decentralized organizations like we saw with, let's say, famously Occupy Wall Street, take a very long time to do anything, um, to decide what they're supposed to do, to get the buy-in from people. So to have this structure written into the code base where if you own these governance tokens, that is a weighted form of voting that should, in theory, um, this is the theory that people are excited about, allow for a decentralized organization to make credible decisions quickly uh, that never actually got used. Um, for context, DAOs can also be, you know, they, they also represent like collective ownership of the project and like specifically like how to use the money that you have kind of gathered together. I guess that was sort of implicit in the project itself, but after the project failed to purchase the constitution, they didn't necessarily use that same infrastructure to figure out like, okay, well, what are we going to do next to what are we going to put this money towards next? Yeah, that was that was definitely sort of a disappointing thing to see as an observer. They really could have taken advantage of this structure by, you know, having a vote that was like, okay, guys, we failed. What should we do now? Should we buy uh, Ben Franklin's 3D glasses? Should <laughs> we buy like a giant bag of weed in Colorado, like they could have solicited internally all of these proposals and voted on them. But instead to quote or paraphrase my esteemed co-author, Kevin, the organizers acted as if they were in the thrall of this crowd and the crowd acted as if they were spurned contributors to a Kickstarter. I want to read off a line that I really enjoyed in the piece towards the beginning, where you say the implications of the gesture were profound. Here was a group of people staking a claim for Web3 as a tool that could be used to build a world with new rules by purchasing the rules of the old one. But in helping to bid up the document's price to record-breaking levels, perhaps even in deciding that this particular document was something worth rallying behind at all, the DAO's donors may have inadvertently reinforced the power of the old order. Can you guys talk a bit about in what way did it feel like this project was a learning experience for the Web3 community or a cautionary tale about where these sorts of financial flash mobs can go wrong? Well, the most obvious one is simply how much of the project was eaten up in the gas fees. So the way that the cryptocurrency behind the project moved around is still very expensive. Uh, people are working on developing new ways of moving crypto around, which is far less expensive and far less carbon intensive as well. Um, and so taking that part seriously would have, I think, left a much better taste in everyone's mouth. And I think kind of piggybacking off of what Kevin brought up, there are these things called layer two protocols, which kind of piggyback onto the Ethereum network. One source that we spoke to sort of explained it as if uh, a layer two protocol were like a bar tab where all four of us go to the bar and we order 
a beer each and we put it on one card, we only have to pay tax once on that transaction, which doesn't really matter with, you know, fiat money because tax is calculated by the dollar amount spent. But on the Ethereum network, uh, gas fees remain relatively static, which poses an issue when you are donating, say, $50 to a Dow trying to buy the Constitution because you may have to pay, you know, 40 or $50 in gas fees. And if you want a refund, then you have to pay 40 or $50 more in gas fees to get your refund. Layer 2 protocols could have helped cut through that. There's a lot of like regulatory weirdness with those, specifically in the state of New York, which is a lot of people. And so by implementing these layer two protocols, they would have cut out like a huge swath of potential donors. There were also ways in which some members of the community and people watching from the outside felt that certain decisions that were made along the way had revealed a lot of blind spots in this group decision-making, especially around issues of race. I mean, they did call their token dollar sign people, which some folks, namely like most people, would find distasteful because suddenly by donating to this DAO, you are buying and owning people, which sort of becomes an issue always, but doubly so when you're talking about the Constitution, which was, of course, a document that made owning other people legal and it said that if you were a person who was owned by someone else, you were worth three-fifths of another person. The word problematic gets bandied about a lot, but it's pretty problematic. How does this story fit into the larger landscape of crypto and like meme economics that we've seen dominating a lot of the narrative in 2021? You know, like everything from NFTs, GameStop, meme stonks, etc. So much of what has come out of NFTs and meme stonks is um, so non-revolutionary, so like explicitly non-revolutionary, so much reveling in its being hyper-capitalistic that again like the it leaves a bad taste in anyone's in mouth who watches these kind of antics right? like, i get that at the same time this was aspiring to more and the fact that it did not succeed on every dimension is inevitable we are all so far embedded in these systems that it is very difficult to do what they did even technologically and socially let alone asking them to succeed or innovate but I mean, the reason why this is the first time I really got into Web3 stuff is because I am quite interested in governance. Like, I think that the possibilities of t t technology for creating new, like, forms of democracy are 
exciting and in some sense inevitable. Like it's so clear that the forms of democracy that we have now that were designed 250 years ago, literally in the constitution are not working very well. They're uh, wildly out of date. And so I don't even know what else we could do except try to use contemporary communication technology to design a better democratic system. Um, I, I don't think any kind of piecemeal reform will work. And so Although that does sound utopian, a, a big part of the enthusiasm for Web3 is that the status quo is so bad that it makes sense that actually gambling my, my savings on shitcoins is the best way of maximizing my expected value compared to like playing the standard work 60 hours a week, try to scrape together some money game that we're supposed to play. One thing that I find super fascinating about Web3 in general is the idea of a DAO is this like completely horizontal governance structure. Like no one is anyone else's boss. No one is in charge. Everyone decides how to move forward. And so in that way, it is like kind of this anarchist, socialist, horizontalist ideal. Yet at the same time, the fact that you can choose between all of these different DAOs to join, and you don't have to join them at all, uh, is also this like libertarian ideal of choose your own adventure government edition. Well, sure, but yeah, and anarchism, libertarianism, uh, let's say polycentric government is this idea, and you know, it. There's long histories of this, right? There's an the establishment of the civil constitution in the UK. There used to be traveling judges, where in fact people would have opting into whatever government structure they wanted to. And the received model of like the nation state and liberal democracy that is supposed to be the end of history and yet is so obviously insufficient for the tasks of today, it succeeds by making itself inevitable. Right? And so um, all these fringe ideas that have been, you know, moldering at the, at the outsides of weirdo, political philosophy enthusiasts have the potential to become quite relevant now. And I, I think it's exciting, especially because they're not going to become relevant because someone wrote a good article or a good tweet. They're going to become relevant because someone used the tools of today to build something. Yeah. And I think that uh, Constitution DAO, why it's important is it really points towards like a whole bunch of different things. One of the kind of potential ways forward I talked about with one of our sources was this idea of like, you know, this exact same model could be used for a decentralized bail fund where, you know, there's a protest in, let's say, Richmond, Virginia, and you have all this money sitting in this bail fund DAO. And folks in the DAO are like, oh, there's this protest going on. Seems like people are going to be arrested because they're going to try to tear down some Confederate statues. And so let's say Emily, who is in the DAO, says, I think we should give money towards bailing people out once they inevitably get arrested. And then everyone votes. Everyone says yes. And so, you know. Once 
folks get arrested for tearing down the Confederate statue, they have this DAO that is going to bail them out. I want to piggyback off that where I found it interesting that though this piece was nominally about Constitution DAO, there was like an entire section of it dedicated to the subject of network protest movements, talking about how social media has been extremely useful for, say, mobilizing large numbers of people, getting people out on the street, but then not always useful or effective for building organizations that are built to last or that set and accomplish concrete goals. Why do you think that is? So this is the kind of paradox of trust and trustlessness, right? So the pitch for much of crypto is that it enables interactions between people without establishing any form of trust, right? So there's in any kind of market interaction or I guess any kind of interaction, there is implicit the idea that I, I trust the other person to follow through on what they said they would do. Sometimes that trust is established by fear of punishment by the state or by social sanction or by longstanding reputational costs, right? But there's some trust. And what crypto is supposed to do is allow for people to have interactions without having any trust, a trustless system. And that's what these flash mobs represent compared to traditional social movements. So social movements in earlier technological eras, in order to logistically work, required a lot of time and buy-in. Go out into the streets, you know, get harassed by the establishment, come back, talk to each other, be together, experience these things that draw humans closer together. And so in the process of building movement capacity, organizational capacity, you're also building trust. Um, and so some of the most successful social movements like the civil rights movement were based on this idea. It was like a very lengthy process to get to where they were able to have a quarter million people march on Washington before King's speech. And so with the these flash movements, which Occupy Wall Street, 2003, anti-war protests in the U.S., uh, Arab Spring, many, many things over the past five years around the world, uh, we see that, that technology is, is very effective for getting people into the streets, but it does not mean that they trust each other or that they have um, the organizational capacity. And so that's these financial flash mobs Right? There's this paradox where they're using technology which is designed to help them coordinate in a trustless way. And yet, as, as we mentioned earlier, when the one thing that motivated them failed, they experienced what Zena Tefeki calls the tactical freeze, and they were unable to switch their tactics. Right? They, their only move at that point was to uh, just give up and gave all the money back so no one got mad. Yeah, and to offer a concrete example of that, in David Graeber's book, The Democracy Project, David Graeber being the late anthropologist who wrote Bullshit Jobs, the influential anarchist thinker who was very involved in Occupy, he writes in The Democracy Project that 
in the early days of Occupy, their sort of like decentralized horizontal list meetings would be completely just like fucked up by these groups of Maoists who would come with signs. They would like build a stage, I think, and they would just sort of like try to take the meeting over and set the agenda. And it would lead to all this chaos because if you're a horizontal movement, you have to like convince everyone like, oh, we need to get these Maoists out of here because they're hijacking the shit. But then a lot of people are just like, well, you know, if they're there, maybe they're actually in charge. Like people don't actually know. And so the idea of having a DAO and DAOs are often connected to like these specific Discord channels actually provides a bit of coherence to what otherwise might be sort of a chaotic horizontal model because rather than like trying to figure out all of this stuff like in the moment in real time as the thing is happening you get a chance to work out a lot of issues about like what are our goals what are we going to be doing prior to the you know event protest whatever action in question and still like make decisions in this like kind of highly democratic manner so how does this story feel like a metaphor for 2021 or maybe an illustration of the post-biden zeitgeist how would you describe the post-biden zeitgeist versus like the trump zeitgeist i feel like trump and covid were like this one-two punch where everybody is sort of like on the same page. They're like, all right, orange man, bad, COVID bad. And after Trump lost the election and after, you know, COVID obviously hasn't gone away, but like we've also lived, learned to live with it to a certain degree. That has really taken us off of like this unified page. And now we're all just sort of like, trying to do like wild shit i think that the post-trump era really began with the gamestop stock thing suddenly you had like these like left populists and right populists working together like both ted cruz and aoc were like let let the fucking reddit people buy the meme stocks um which you know was not something that you would have seen like a year ago so after that i feel like this year has been driven by a lot of like both speculation and optimism and yeah, there's people doing wild shit. I don't know. I mean, also there's the clear change in the material conditions. I think the era might better be called the uh, Jay Powell era after the chairman of the federal reserve, Jerome Powell, for whom many of these people uh, is a inspiration in his decision to just print money. And so there have been memes circulating for uh, almost two years now about this is the era of loose money, as indeed the, the Fed has decided to allow for much more inflationary policy than they had in the past. They just actually released the inflation report for November, and it's the highest in uh, like a few decades. So the, the, the pathway from a loose monetary policy to the fact that everyone feels like these numbers are all made up and don't matter uh, as part of the meme stock frenzy led to also 
some of the enthusiasm for crypto as a um, inflation hedge or as, as currency that exists outside of the state's capacity to um, inflate their uh, money. Kind of piggybacking off of that, there is a bit of feeling of abundance. Like over the past few months, it's been incredibly easy to make money off of like something that would have sounded like complete gibberish even a year ago. Like, you know, making money because you put 500 bucks into AMC stock or becoming really into uh, Axie Infinity, the NFT game. And so like we we're in this time where everything feels abundant and not completely real. So, you know, why not get together and try to buy a copy of the Constitution? And then it's also interesting that, you know, compared to how things felt very much during the Trump era, where it was people sort of taking different sides and arguing on the Internet and just sort of existing in the realm of online discourse on these for-profit platforms, Web3 sort of introduces this element of things being attached to an actual financial stake or like the ability to mobilize sums of money and coordinate feels very different from how things were under the Trump era where it felt like we were just like stuck in this endless rolling stupid like bean dad style discourse. Yeah, exactly. So on that note, you know, reading your story, I, I couldn't help but wonder, does this feel like kind of a quintessentially American story to you guys? Or maybe is it a post-American story? Yeah, I don't know how many of the individuals involved are American. And it does seem like the ethos is genuinely international uh, in a way that is also, let's say, moving beyond Trump. Right during, during the Trump era, it was shocking to see like educated people in Europe know more about the intricacies of the subpoenas in the House or whatever than I did. Um, and so I feel like the world overall is a bit tired of the uh, hyper-Americanism of Trump. So the use of the Constitution buying thing, I, I, I really do feel like it has as much to do with the memes from Nicolas Cage movie as it does the lofty rhetoric about the founding document of this country. I definitely think that's true. And... In our story, Kevin actually went to Independence Hall in Philadelphia and we were like, oh yeah, there's going to be like some fucking Constitution Dow person there, like in a tri-corner hat, you know, watching the Sotheby's live stream on their phone in front of like a place from National Treasure. And Kevin, do you want to talk about your experience there i just hung out it was pretty nice uh you get to see the liberty bell and the constitution hall uh but there was not actually anyone there part of the expectation for this was the fact that there was the ape suit protests led by the meme stonks people on wall street and there does feel like a general crossover of irl streamers or a culture on which there are a sufficient number of people who are invested in bringing the internet to the real world that it seemed plausible that someone else might be there. 
And Kevin, why was this significant to you that there was no IRL component? Oh, well, so getting into the idea of what a signature is, right? The government of the DAO was based on this multi-sig group of, I believe, 17 people who were in some way like responsible for setting it up and endorsing it. And thinking about the actual physical signature, i.e. like the John Hancock, the, uh, the way in which the hand transforms your identity into a mark on a piece of paper that had for so many years been the primary form of a unique identifier. That technology is obviously no longer relevant, uh, but was the technology that was used when signing the Declaration of Independence and the, the Constitution. Um, so in some sense, it makes sense that now people have moved beyond both the contractual elements of physical proximity and physical proximity as necessary for socialization. That indeed, people are using new technologies to interact with each other in perhaps healthier ways, and that this is a potential way forward in that my biases about the necessity of being in person caused me to miss. And then, although this was an example of people like finding new ways to organize, you talk about how they may not have landed on an actual organization or architecture in, in a lasting sense. Yeah, I mean, the DAO really kind of just like fell apart after their like one goal was thwarted by Ken Griffin, the GameStop hedge fund benefiter. They experienced what Zainab Tufeki refers to as the tactical freeze. Yeah, so the fact that it's difficult for these organizations that are built in a short time period and don't have an official governance structure to switch the tactics they employ. So when the Occupy Wall Street example, it's the tactic that brought everyone together was also the only tactic they could use, which was to literally sit in the park. They didn't have the organizational capacity to either decide what else to do or execute a different tactic. And here, right, what everyone was motivated to join together to do was to buy the Constitution. Uh, and the strength of that meme is what allowed this to happen in the first place. But because it happened so quickly and without attention to organizational capacity, they were similarly unable to adapt. And when they failed at doing their one, their one move, they had no choice but to basically give up and collapse in an expensive way. Yeah, and this is sort of consistent with the idea that it is like hard for contemporary network protest movements to also often identify a concrete aim or set of tactics. And so what was it? They don't have the ability to take yes for an answer. Exactly. So Drew, you wrote a piece for Vice earlier this year that I had hoped we could bring you on to talk about at some point called Welcome to the New Roaring Twenties. 
you wrote it back in June. It kind of talked about like how it felt the zeitgeist of this year was shaping up. I'll read a quote that I liked from it. Coronavirus cases are down. Meme stocks and crypto markets are up. It has been nearly two fiscal quarters since Donald Trump left the White House. The sun is out, and I personally am ready to party. (laughs) There's an exuberance in the air as though we've emerged from a year spent getting poorer and sadder alone, ready to get richer and happier together. Not through organizing and collective action, but by getting so irrationally excited about some random bullshit that it magically becomes worth money. This was written before Delta really took off in the States. Everyone was like getting ready to go out. They were freshly vaccinated, etc. I'm wondering if you think like, do you feel that this premonition bore out? I think that actually maybe I was wrong about it being, quote unquote, the roaring 20s. And I also kind of debunked the idea that the 20s ever roared in the first place in the piece. But... I think instead what's emerging is we're just going to start seeing these like cycles where, you know, a new variant of COVID comes out, everybody gets scared and sick and, you know, it'll suck. And then it will dissipate or we'll figure out how to like contain it or, you know, yet another vaccine will come out. Like, obviously we're on, vaccine dose three for most folks now and then everyone gets like excited again and ready to party and i feel like we're just going to keep going through these cycles of fear to excitement and exuberance over and over again until covid variants get progressively weaker and the thing just sort of fades away but it also seems like There's also been, as we've kind of discussed through this podcast, like, and you discussed in the piece, this sense that people are kind of turning to building their own worlds online, or that feels like it will continue to be part of the zeitgeist and like, maybe can't always meet and gather in physical space, but can sort of try to create these metaverse style alternate realities. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Emily. What's interesting about this Roaring Twenties mentality, because I think that was, I mean, you really crystallized it in that piece, Drew, but it's just something I kept hearing thrown around. I reported this piece in June where I went out to a nightclub right after things reopened and, you know, talked to people there and a lot of them threw around this term, the Roaring Twenties. And then literally like a week later, Delta like kind of shut everything down or we had to walk it back. The, the takeaway that that really highlighted to me is this larger trend of there being an expectation that things will, you know, quote unquote, go back to normal and then we can all go out and celebrate and there'll be this change. And I see that as sort of a, a, a broader trend for maybe like the past five years to a decade where it's this feeling of like, you know, Biden gets elected and then everything goes back to, you know, pre-Trump. And what I'm slowly coming to realize is that social changes or cultural changes that we anticipate as a society, which this is no shocker, but they happen on you know one step forward, two steps back, slow continuum rather than this black and white shift that I think we all you know aspire or hope for. And I think also, well, for one, Biden like pretty explicitly was like, okay, if we all get vaccinated, then on 4th of July, 
you'll be allowed to like have a barbecue and that's going to be normal and cool again. But also, you know, I think that like that is a fundamentally conservative vision of the world. Like this idea that we can go back to normal because like that ship has sailed. Like not only have we all been shaped by these experiences, but as technology develops at this super rapid pace, that changes how we interface with the world. And Kevin has, for his Substack, actually written a piece kind of taking this like technological deterministic view of the world. Yeah. So, I mean, the word, the term technological determinism is uh, fraught, let's say. I think, though, it is false in the sense that technology does not determine how people use technology. At the same time, at present, the magnitude of the technological shock is so large that I do think it is going to cause us to have to reevaluate all of our institutions and social structures. So in my mind, I'm willing to bite the bullet and say that the internet and the constellation of technologies that include social media and smartphones is at least in the top two most important media technology revolutions of all time. And if we just look at the history of what happened after the printing press came around, it, it really took hundreds of years for like human society to incorporate it and to develop institutions that were suited to this kind of communication technology. Like we're talking things like the idea of reason, the idea of representative democracy, the idea of free speech and freedom of the press. Right? So these are all specific ideals that had to be developed in order to accommodate this new communication technology in a way that allowed for human flourishing. So with that in mind, it does feel like now with the internet technology more broadly, the scope of possibilities is extremely broad. And right, a lot of the things that people do will fail, right? It's very difficult to know what will succeed now uh, just because the scope of what is possible is so difficult to even imagine. And because as one norm or technology or type of organization is adjusting to the new technological reality, it still has to deal with the rest of the kind of interlocking framework of institutions. And so it cannot be too radical at first. And I feel like that is a reasonable way to understand what's going on with this DAO, which is they cannot have fully like sprung from nowhere a perfect use of the new technology. It's still deeply embedded in existing legal, social, cultural structures. But as more of these experiments take place, we could see them fitting together in new ways that truly unlocks their potential. I think that's totally spot on, Kevin. You know, we had an earlier episode this season talking about NFTs, like right when all that started popping off with like Grimes. And similarly, I think NFTs as we know them now is like auctionable gifts, you know, just barely scratching the surface of that potential of technology. This reminds me of... Uh... One of my favorite lines in the piece you wrote, which was, the technology itself is no guarantee of a revolution, but neither is its artless application a con condemnation of its potential. 
where like a lot of times like people dismiss web three out of hand because like the stuff they happen to see is just like really stupid the most successful and famous applications like board eight yacht club are just like i don't know just not culturally representative of like what we would consider something that gives us hope about the future necessarily or like a bit vapid and kind of like a bad scene yeah board ape yacht club and andrea please don't get offended by this is very la how so damn she doesn't sound very offended <laughs> no it just it, in, it just reminds me of like a digital version of an edm trap club night where it's just like a bunch of shitheads like getting together and celebrating the fact that they're shitheads and spending money on something that they think is cool, aka like bad streetwear. They're celebrating the fact that they bought these like NFTs of uh, cartoon apes and that now they have like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. Like they have become overnight millionaires and they're part of this club that has all become rich and it's almost like, and they found a community through it. But it is like Constitution Dow. It's just an example of like a bunch of people coalescing around a thing, this sort of erratic central object and having that thing be attached to money and that forms the basis of the community a tale as old as time in that sense i I do also want to be somewhat critical of the technology so i have seen like critical technologists taking web 3 seriously on its own terms and i think a lot of them the consensus is this basically doesn't do anything yet. Most of the things that people think they're doing with it, including Constitution Dow, they actually just aren't. And it's all just a weird scam. And I think that there is basically something to this. Like I think that the carbon conversation is is certainly an important one, but if anything, that kind of narrows the scope of critique. But in fact, the broader concern is perhaps that these technologies actually aren't it. Um, And so I think it is important to really take that seriously. And the reason that I am still somewhat optimistic about all this is that it has more to do with illustrating possibility and generating enthusiasm. There's a potential line of flight where young technology enthusiasts are using this meme as an inspiration to rethink what is possible. Even if the specific technological capacities of blockchain and the associated smart contracts are not anywhere close to what is being pitched, the possibility of really doing something has felt so lacking for so long that I feel like it's better to try to uh, ride the wave and see where it goes. And Kevin, in our piece, you wrote a line that I really loved. It was my favorite line from the piece. It was something about how in this moment, the internet feels exciting and it has not felt that way in years. I think that that sort of intrepid spirit is probably more important than the Web3 technologies themselves, almost. 
my favorite kind of bit of web three of ephemera is how everyone says w-a-g-m-i uh which stands for we are gonna make it and i like it because not only can it represent like oh what if there were a DAO for people bidding on a copy of the constitution and you say we are gonna make it but also it's more of this like perseverance mentality like we are gonna make it through the bullshit or whatever I mean, we sort of talked about this with Matt Dryhurst when we had him on for the NFT conversation earlier in the year. And I think I didn't quite wrap my mind around it at the time, but now I have a better understanding of it. You know, I I come from an arts background, and so that's the perspective from which I often think about these things. But if you have musicians who go from making like $7.25 off of their streaming royalties for a song from the year to them suddenly being able to make like a couple thousand dollars off of the song or even tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. You give them that taste of what it could mean to feel truly valued. The model may not stand up, but they're not going to want to go back to what it was before and feeling beholden to the Spotify's and Apple Music's and titles of the world. Like, it's going to change how people see things, even if the technologies themselves don't end up being, like, the lasting next wave. Yeah, it's important to remember, the status quo is so bad. I do think, in hindsight, we're going to see the rise of platform social media as something akin to the enclosure of the digital commons, that there was all of this flourishing of potential and connection and social arrangement, which these ambitious technologists were able to, in effect, trick us into giving up and allow them to set the rules of the game and extract a huge amount of the surplus value created on the internet. So on that note, you know, looking back over this year and what a different place we're in from December 2020, but also kind of a similar place in a way, what makes you guys excited about the future? Are you feeling hopeful? Yes, I am specifically hopeful for spring 2023 when How Golf Will Save Your Life by Drew Millard will come out on Abrams Press. Not going to make it, bro. I mean, I do think that we are in for a short-term serious, like, shakeup, but in a certain sense that feels necessary. So in the medium to long-term, right, on the scale of a decade, I think things will be very different than they were a decade before. It does feel like we're still living in the long 90s in some ways, and I think that has to do with the demography of this country in particular, right? So we are run by a gerontocracy more than ever before. And when we start actually getting turnover in the institutions of power, that is academia, media, uh, legal firms, and of course, government, the scope of what's possible will be rapidly accelerated. So I, I think that we're going to see things get weirder and weirder over the next decade, and then some kind of crack up, and then some real possibility for whoever has built some kind of possible replacement stepping in and creating the new world. And maybe that's another important thing about kind of the suite of Web3 technologies is it's hard to understand them if you're not willing to like put in a bunch of time to like figure them out. Like some people innately understand them because they have like 
intense backgrounds in technology or are just more technically adept than me personally. But I do think that they create the space of opportunity where, you know, the older entrenched authority figures are just going to be like, eh, it seems too hard. Not going to worry about it. Not going to think about it. Um, and that like creates space for new actors. For me, I mean, obviously there is a lot that I am also despondent about and that keeps me up at night, but that, you know, that is what it is. If I have to think about what I'm excited about for the future, I mean, I'm very excited about labor. You know, we just got news about that the first Starbucks unionizing, which is awesome and nascent and unexpected labor movements, I think have been kind of a big sub theme on our show. And so I'm excited about that. And also because of the way that it kind of goes hand in hand with Web3 and the themes about organization that we were just talking about with your piece, it's a great example of how technology can lend itself to collective action for good rather than, you know, the uncriticable power of the individual and wanting to leave Earth and go to space. (laughs) Yep, I agree with that, Andrea. I think I have a personal interest in Web3 as something specifically for the left or maybe that the left should be paying more attention to as a mode of organizing as well. We'll see what happens and what comes of it, but it has felt like a very exciting time and I am optimistic for the future and just all these conversations that are happening, honestly. Absolutely. Well... Kevin Munger, Drew Millard, friend and boyfriend of the pod. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks, y'all. This was fun. To read Drew and Kevin's piece and check out more of their work, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. Our show is produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is by Mark Donica. If you like what you're hearing, give us a share. Or leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.